Amen. Our uh, reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 to 12. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so it may be very slightly different to the, uh, the version that you'll read in the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Well, we've been journeying towards Christmas, and we are nearly there, Christmas Eve. I want to remind you of uh, some of the stops, as it were, along the way on this journey this year. We have thought already about young and old, young and old. We thought about young Mary and old Simeon, different ends of the spectrum with regards to their age, and yet they both modeled to us the power of faith to free us from fear. So Mary is facing this life-changing uh, experience. She is about to be 
bringing into the world the, the Son of God, and as if that were not scary enough, there is the thought surely in her mind of all of the plans that she has made with her life with Joseph, uh, her, her respect within her community, all, all of that is under threat, and yet she places her faith in the Lord, and she sings a song filled with joy. And the same could be said for Simeon. He's an old man. He is facing the reality of death, something which uh, most people find very frightening to contemplate, and yet he has placed his faith in his God. And as he meets the Lord Jesus Christ, as he holds the Lord Jesus Christ in his frail old hands, as he holds Jesus aloft, he is filled with joy. And again, we have the song of, of, of Simeon. He is ready now to go to be with his God. Faith's power to free us from fear and to fill us with joy. We ought to be clear that it's not the power of faith in and of itself. Sometimes, we, well, often, if you're a Christian and people know that you're a Christian and you go through a hard time in life, they'll come alongside you, and it's well-intentioned. I don't want to, to kind of uh, deny that or to be critical, but people will come alongside you and they'll say, it's really good you've got your faith. Well, I'm not sure what that means. What is my faith? Is it the Christian faith? Is it my own wee personal collection of beliefs that I've picked up here and there? What do people mean when they say it's good you've got your faith? Because faith in and of itself is worth nothing. Faith in the, in the wrong object, in the wrong thing or the wrong person is worth less than nothing. Simeon and Mary don't place their faith in faith itself. I'm not sure what people mean when they say, it's good you've got your faith, but I don't think they mean it's good you're placing your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Mary and Simeon did. They placed their trust and their hope in God, in the true and living God, in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they placed their trust and their hope in the one whom God had sent, or was about to send, in Mary's case, into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were free to sing songs of joy in the face of very frightening realities. So we've looked at young and old. We've looked at life and death. One of the gifts, we've been singing about the wise men journeying from the east. One of the gifts that the wise men bring to the feet of Jesus is myrrh. And uh, Scripture doesn't tell us if that is symbolic of anything, but historically the church has always said that the gift of myrrh points forward to the death of Jesus because myrrh was used to anoint dead bodies. And so even here, as Jesus is just a, a baby, perhaps a toddler, there is a, a pointer forward 
to the death that Jesus will die. He still has to live his whole life. But there is a pointer forward to the death that Jesus will die. Even as we think back to Simeon, of course. Simeon uh, turned to Mary and said, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And he says to Mary, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. So right at the start of Jesus' life, he's, what, eight days old at the temple, Simeon turns to Mary and says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary is warned of the pain that she will face as she watches her son die on the cross. Jesus' birth mattered. Jesus' life mattered, but it was by his death that he defeated death for all who trust in him. And we are never permitted to look at the Lord Jesus Christ without having one eye on the cross of Christ and one eye on the empty tomb as he was raised from death. Jesus' birth mattered, his life mattered, but his death and his resurrection secured for us the victory that we celebrate this morning. So we've thought a bit about the gift of myrrh already. Today I want to encourage us to think a wee bit about the gift of frankincense. Frankincense was used in temple worship. I've never smelled frankincense, but apparently it has a very distinctive smell when it's burned. Apparently it burns for a long time, and apparently the flame that burns from frankincense is a very steady flame. So it was used in temple worship in the first century. And just as myrrh has traditionally been taken by the church to point forward, uh, to reveal to us something of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, so frankincense has traditionally been taken to point forward to the person and the work of Jesus as well. One of the titles given to Jesus is Emmanuel. Isaiah, what, 700 years before Jesus was born, said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Then all those years later, Matthew quotes Isaiah, but adds a wee bit of commentary onto the end. He says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call, him, shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he says, Which means God with us. God with us. That is an amazing thought, isn't it? God with us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us. Behold is an old word, isn't it? You, you wouldn't hear it in any other context other than in a church building, I think now. But it just means look or see or pay attention. And so I think it's a very appropriate word for us this morning, 24th of December, Christmas Eve. There is so much in our minds, you know, 
who is it I need to see tomorrow? What's the weather going to be like? Have I wrapped all my presents? What still needs to be done? What temperature does the turkey go in the oven at again? All these things crowding in on our mind. Behold, says Scripture. Remember, listen, look, pay attention to the real message of Christmas, to the real meaning, to the greatest gift. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. It's amazing that this has been a stumbling block to some Christians. How can a virgin possibly conceive? And people find all sorts of ways to try and pretend that the Bible doesn't say what the Bible clearly says. If you believe that God spoke into nothing and created everything, then I have no idea how you could struggle to believe that God could cause a virgin to conceive. The virgin shall conceive. No ordinary conception for no ordinary child. The virgin shall conceive and she will bear a son, a human being, a son of man who is also the son of God. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. I think that is, that is amazing. If you think about heaven, all the pictures that we are given of, of heaven and Scripture, heaven is a noisy place that's filled with loud praise. And when you think of the angelic host turning to God, turning to Christ, the one word that comes up time and time again is holy. And what does holy mean? It means set apart. It means distinct. So we might think that God would be with no one because God is holy. We might think that God would just dwell by Himself. It's not as if God is lonely. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in loving communion from eternity. And yet, we are assured, as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is with us of all things, of all people, that God would be pleased to come to dwell with sinful human beings. It's an amazing thought, an amazing thoughts. God with us. God with us. Jesus is not just a, a good man, not just a godly man, but God made man. God enfleshed. And we see that time and time and time again in Scripture. Throughout the Gospels, we, we opened this morning's service from John Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. An amazing verse. Imagine being a first century Jew, and you begin to read or to hear John's Gospel read. In the beginning, what are you going to expect comes, comes next? I mean, you know, you know Genesis 1, chapter, uh, verse 1, don't you? First century Jew, in the beginning, God. 
That's what you're expecting. Before anything else was created, there was only God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what you're going to expect. John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. So there's a distinction there. And the Word was God. Isn't that amazing? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then as Jesus grows up again, we see His divinity revealed for us in the life that He lived. He continually does what only God can do. He stills the storm with a word from his lips. Remember, the sea symbolizes in Jewish thought everything that is chaotic, everything that is dark, everything that is uncontrollable, everything which stands against God. You have this storm. The experienced fishermen are terrified for their lives, and Jesus says, be still. Two words in English, probably one word in Aramaic as Jesus spoke it. Just a word from his lips, and the storm is stilled, and the waves heed the command of their Creator. They quieten down instantaneously. Who can do that? Only God. He speaks to death and brings forth life. Who can speak to death and bring forth life? Lazarus, come forth. Or to the wee girl, Talitha, come, little girl, arise. He speaks to death and death is replaced with life. Only God can do that. He forgives sin. Remember the reaction of the people around him as he forgives sin? Angrily they say, who can forgive sin but God alone? Do you know, they're halfway there. They've understood that every sin, all sin, is an offense against God. So if I was to go down and punch Kirsty in the face. Of course I wouldn't do that, Kirsty. It would never cross my mind. But were I to do that, who would I, I have wronged? I would have wronged Kirsty, of course. But I would also have wronged God, because I know that God would not want me to go down and punch Kirsty in the face. And that's the most serious thing. The most serious crime would have been committed not against Kirsty, as bad as that would be for you, Kirsty. The most serious offense would be to God, because I've said in that moment to God, I know what you want me to do, but I know better than you. And they understand that. These, these angry people around Jesus understand that only God can truly forgive sin. But what they don't recognize is that as they stand in the presence of Jesus, they are standing in the presence of God. As Jesus pronounces this man's sins forgiven, he has the authority to do it because he is God. He does what only God can do, and he takes what only God can take. He takes the very name of God to himself. So God reveals to Moses the divine name, I am 
and the, the Israelites and the Jewish people are so reverential towards this divine name of God that they will not speak it out loud. And along comes Jesus, and he takes this name to himself time and time again. I think the most striking example is in John chapter 8, so he's having an argument with a, a group of Jewish people. And uh, he says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? So Abraham died about 2,000 years earlier. You're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what's their reaction to that? They pick up stones to stone him because they are convinced that he is blaspheming. And were he not God, he would be blaspheming. But he takes to himself the name given only to God. He takes the name of God and he receives the worship of people. What first century Jewish rabbi would happily take worship from other people? I mean, if you think of the angels and all of their glory and all of their splendor and all of their majesty and their radiance, every time people meet angels in Scripture, they are awestruck. The most common reaction is to fall, for them to fall in their faces before the angels. And the consistent response of the angels is to say, no, get up off your face. Don't worship me. I'm just a created being. The same as you. I might be better than you. I might be able to shine in a way that you can't shine. I might be radiant in a way that you're not radiant, but I'm just a created being. I am not worthy of worship. Worship only God. But when Thomas says to Jesus eventually, my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't say to him, no, 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 Thomas, you're, you're getting carried away. You can't worship. I'm just a man. You can't worship me. Worship only God. No, Jesus responds by saying, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He is God and he is man. He tires, he hungers, he suffers, he weeps, he dies for us. He is like us in every way, yet without sin. And so, in Jesus, God and man are one. That is amazing. You could study that, you could reflect on that, you could chew over that for a lifetime, and you would never feel you've quite grasped it. In Jesus, God and man are one. Jesus is fully God, and He is fully man. In Jesus, God and man are one. But just as amazing as that, through Jesus, God and men and women 
and boys and girls can be made one with God. The, the word atonement, when you see it written out, makes this clear. At one meant. Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection mean that all who come to him as a child and give their lives to him, pledge their allegiance to King Jesus, all who place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and call on his name are washed clean. They have their sins thrown as far as the east is from the west, and they are welcomed into the family of God forever. They are made one with God again. God and man, God and men, God and women, God and children, at one, together, united, at peace, in a loving relationship for all eternity. Because of Jesus, because Jesus succeeded where every other man and every other woman has failed since Adam and Eve. He lived a life free from sin and rebellion against God, his Father, and yet in love he died a sinner's death. In our place condemned he stood, we sing. He died for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame on the cross. He became, we might say, a kinsman redeemer like Boaz. Or maybe better to say he became like David. Remember as, as David defeated Goliath, we are like the Philistines, not Philistines, we are like the Israelites, we are like the people of God standing on the sidelines trembling at the size and the stature of Goliath, knowing that we cannot bring him down. And out steps David, just a boy. He looks so weak and so feeble. He's no big fancy armor, no big sword with which to take out Goliath. And Goliath laughs at him. You know, coming at me with sticks. Is this a joke? And David, as weak as he looks, brings down the enemy of God's people. And all of the Israelites rejoice. That is us. Powerless to defeat sin. Powerless to defeat the fruit of sin, chiefly death. We, we kind of stand there trying not to look at it. Maybe every now and then we have a glance and it fills us with terror. And then we see Jesus stepping out doesn't look like a mighty warrior as he's born as a baby in Bethlehem. doesn't look like a mighty warrior to many by the way that he chose to live his life. doesn't look like a mighty warrior by the way that he died his death on the cross, perhaps, to many. And yet by his life and by his death, he defeats our greatest enemy. And all we need to do is to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of Christ Jesus. The door is open. The opportunity is there for all simply to give themselves to Jesus and to be fully, freely, forever forgiven. So, I, I 
meandered a wee bit. What's all this got to do with frankincense, you see? Well, the temple, remember, was the meeting place between God and humanity. God and people met at the temple. Now, Jesus is that meeting place between God and people. The temple was the place where priests worked on behalf of the people. Now, Jesus is our perfect priest. The temple is where sacrifices were offered day after day. Jesus has offered the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, the lamb without blemish, slain for our sins, and he lives to intercede for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Anselm was a, an archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century, and he compares our sin to a debt that we owe to God. And he says, there's this great problem. We owe this great debt to God, but we are utterly unable to pay it back, as, as the history of humanity will show. We owe this great debt to God, but only God has the means with which to pay it. And because God is love, he was pleased to take on flesh, to be made man, that he might pay the debt for us, that he might wipe the slate clean, and that we might be brought back into the fold and the family of God. Jesus is the meeting place between a holy God and sinful people who know their needs and place their trust in Him. Those who pledge their allegiance to King Jesus will live with God forever, at one with Him. And as we celebrate the first Advent, we also look forward to the second coming of Christ. We are still a watching and a waiting people, even when you have the last chocolate in your Advent calendar, we are still a watching and awaiting people. We look forward to the day when Jesus will come again. The people of Jesus, the bride of Christ, will dwell with God in the fullness of His presence forever, in a world made new, without sin and without the fruit of sin. Behold, says John, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So remember this Christmas that we are still a watching and a waiting people. He will come again to make all things new. And for those committed to Christ and His kingdom, the best is yet 
to be. So celebrate, rejoice this Christmas, tomorrow, and uh, always in the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who is God. And we do celebrate that. We do celebrate him together as we stand to, uh, to sing our closing hymn, Meekness and Majesty. <laughs>